0: To today's podcast my name is amanda and i'm just a teenager who loves talking about politics and current issues thank you guys for tuning into this episode all right let's cut the small talk and just jump right in ever since i was about 12 i have been super interested and passionate in criminal justice in america And Someday, I really want to be a criminal attorney, and through all of the information I've learned and the books that I've read and documentaries I've watched, I truly believe that the American criminal justice system is the biggest form of underlying oppression that we still see today in the United States. So, I've decided to make a four-part series about the criminal justice system and the various aspects of it. So today I'm going to talk about the history of the criminal justice system starting at the 13th amendment and leading all the way up to the rise in incarceration during the 70s. All right let's get started. Let's start with some startling facts. While the US only holds 5% of the world's population, we hold 25% of the prison population. So this is a really common statistic that I hear a lot when people talk about criminal justice and just to sort of put that into perspective, one in every four people that are behind bars in the entire world are behind bars in the United States or the quote, land of the free. The Center for American Progress reports that people of color are overrepresented in the system, while they only make up 13% of the overall population, they make up 60% of the prison population. In addition to that, if you are a convicted felon in most states, you can no longer vote. So that means that 1 in 13 African American men do not have a voice in government. There are more people behind bars in the United States than there are people living in big cities like Phoenix, San Diego, or Dallas. In addition, the prison policy reports that 80% of people in jail are simply just awaiting trial and have not yet been convicted. So, why? Why does America have such high rates of crime and incarceration? And has it always been like this? The short answer is no. The prison system in America has created controversy ever since it began. The first prisons in America practiced public shaming as a way to deter crime. Then, around the 1700s, they used aggressive forms of isolation for prisoners. Prisoners would wake up every day in their cell by themselves, spend the entire day by themselves, and were punished if they so much as talked. The system as a whole really took a turn for the worse during and after the Civil War. So to fully understand the injustices in our system and how it is so deeply rooted in racism and discrimination, we must take a long look at the 13th Amendment. On a side note, if you haven't seen 13th, the documentary on Netflix, stop listening to this and go watch it. It is an incredibly, incredibly well done documentary and a lot of the information I got for this podcast is from that documentary. Okay, so let's talk slavery. Slavery in the United States existed as what the Southerners would call an economic necessity. And so they tried to claim that they needed this free labor because that's how they made all their money and they were able to sell all of their products around the world. And after the Civil War, slavery was ended. And so 4 million people that used to be used for free labor were now free and not forced to work on the plantations. And so the Southerners were essentially left without any labor and then they would have to pay for their labor, which they claimed would sort of throw off their economy. Well, thankfully for them, there's this huge loophole in the 13th Amendment that they took advantage of very heavily. So right now I'm just going to read the 13th Amendment for you uh, word for word. So this is the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And it says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to its jurisdiction so essentially what that means or what people take it to mean is that you can't slavery cannot exist free labor cannot exist except if you are a prisoner and so what especially what the south did was to get their labor back they would exploit um these freedmen so if they were caught stealing if they were caught petty crimes nothing like serious like just petty crimes they would arrest them and force them back into free labor and they would have these incredibly long prison sentences because they needed the free labor to survive after the civil war and that was really where the criminal justice system took a huge turn and stopped being about punishment and rehabilitation and started being about uh, free labor and restoration and all of those things that have really ruined our criminal justice system all the way up until the current day. And so after the Civil War, what we saw was our first prison boom. So the amount of people in prison after the Civil War skyrocketed because they needed that free labor. And the media at this time after the Civil War was really... Um, Honestly, they just did a really poor job in terms of representing what was actually going on. And so oftentimes the media would paint African-American men, um, like specifically men, um, but really they just painted every African-American as like these animals and violent. But um, they'd paint African-American men as violent, especially towards white women in the media. And that's a big thing that you're going to see throughout. Um, this entire podcast is how often that happens, but one big thing that, or a huge turning point, um, was the birth of a nation. So, which was a movie, but just before I get into that, so America, um, after the Civil War, they were like fighting for change and they were trying to make things right, and they had like the Freedmen's Bureau, which um, made sure that former slaves had access to these. Um, like money and jobs and that sort of thing, but that all sort of crumbled for a lot of different reasons. But so a lot of African-Americans were just forced back into slavery through um, mass incarceration. And so this movie, Birth of a Nation, really changed how the media and and society looked at slavery so birth of a nation was this huge blockbuster that came a couple years after the civil war and it painted the civil war from the southern perspective i guess you could say so it really glorified the civil war and showed it as this like patriotic event um which honestly i think and and i don't know this for a fact but i think this movie is probably why people have confederate flags and try to justify it um because this this movie was such a huge turning point in society um especially when it came to the connection between crime and uh race but this movie um painted african americans as animals and horrible people and it like it really glorified the kkk and so what happened as a direct result of this movie was the rebirth of the kkk and in like massive forms of violence towards African-Americans just in horrific, horrific ways, like public lynchings and um, the KKK ran governments in the South, which is something that they do not teach in history class, but it is 100% true. Um, The KKK had control of tons of local and state and even federal government. And so a lot of people will try to say, a lot of Americans will be like, oh, look at that terrorist organization. That's so horrible. We had that in the United States, and that's the KKK, and they are equivalent. And the KKK still exists in America today. Obviously, um, not to the extent that it did back during this time, but it's still something that we need to talk about and be aware of. So all of those factors of increased violence towards African-Americans and all of the mass incarceration of African-Americans and the poor living conditions that they lived in, all of that sort of led to the Great Migration. So if you've never heard about the Great Migration, the Great Migration was when six million African-Americans moved from the South to big cities such as Oakland or Detroit. Um, And they did this for two reasons. One, to escape the oppressive South that was primarily ran by the KKK um, or had lots of um violence within the KKK towards their communities and so they moved to the north uh for that reason and also for better economic opportunities so this was during World War 1 and so they a lot of the workforce was gone and so African Americans were able to get factory jobs and get jobs that actually paid um a livable wage um and so that was incredibly important, and that was something that really changed demographics in America. So after the Great Migration, um, the, this violence and horror that was America, um, an overt violence, kind of, there was a shift in culture, and so it turned from just outward violence and all these horrible things to underlying and legal forms of racism that are really still embedded into our country today. Um, we have the Jim Crow laws, which if you don't know what the Jim Crow laws are, they were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. For example, di- denying African-Americans the right to education or the right to vote. This was also in the era of separate, uh, separate but equal. Of course, we know that it was not in fact equal at all. Um, just separate. And so all of these forms of racism and discrimination within the government led directly into the civil rights movement because people began to feel that they were not represented within their government and thus they had every single right to um, revolt against it and speak out against it. And so that's what started the civil rights movement. So if you guys are still listening, I'm sure you're wondering what is all of this random history have to do with the criminal justice system. Like, did I just go off on a tangent? No. So all of those things that led up to the civil rights movement um, are incredibly important in this conversation because they show how history in the United States has been connected to race. And so by looking at things like the Great Migration and um, the 13th Amendment that really allows us to understand why there are, why people of color are overrepresented in the system because the system was not even built to protect them. And so that's why it's important to talk about that and to see that those disparities to understand. Um, so we have to understand society before we can understand institutions. And so that was what society looked like back then. And so now we're getting into the institutions. Okay, so now that we have a background of what society looked like back then and why people were moving and all of those different factors, now let's talk about the civil rights movement and how it connected to um, the criminal justice system and mass incarceration. Yes, the civil rights movement impacted criminal justice in America. So the biggest way that it did so was a lot of the, specifically Nixon, but a lot of politicians at this time used the civil rights movement to um, as a scapegoat to kind of deny these different people rights and voting rights because they were afraid that they would lose. Um, one thing that I think is really important to talk about, so I've seen a lot on social media recently people posting, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. would have never done this. Like, you must... Um, be peaceful and all of that sort of thing to in response to what's going on um, with all of the Black Lives Matter protests and that is just so historically inaccurate in to say, and I think that that really shows how poorly our education system, or at least I can speak from mine, teaches us the true history of everything, because you learn that Martin Luther King Jr and all these people were just heroes and um, and and yeah, that they were peaceful and that everything just went as planned. But that's just not the truth of what happened because to be a part of a revolution, you have to speak out against something. And Martin Luther King Jr. was once named the most dangerous man by the head of the FBI. So he was not always revered as this amazing like man who was making great strides. Of course we look at him like that now because we have the context and we have the knowledge to look at it like that. But back then it was not that simple it was not that um it's not that simple to understand why these things are the way that they are and you have to understand history to be able to have conversations about what's going on in the current day Uh, in addition to that we have fred hampton uh he was the leader of the black panthers and fred hampton was killed by police while he was in his home sleeping next his pregnant fiance so That is just proof, again, that the government was afraid of these civil rights movements and wanted to um, stifle their voices and protect themselves from all of the mistakes that they had made and they didn't want to see society change. And so they were killing all of these civil rights leaders and painting this movement as this violent, horrible movement so that, A, they could get elected and be so that society could stay the way that it is and not grow and change so if that sounds familiar it is familiar it's happening again um it's sort of shifted a tide in society where people questioned if civil ri- if the civil rights movement was a good movement because the government painted them the people participating in the movement as criminals which as we know was just So horribly inaccurate and that's the problem with um, the government and media at the time was that they really portrayed things that were not true in connection to these big movements to just to protect themselves. Now let's move into the era of Richard Nixon and mass incarceration and this idea of law and order. Everybody knows that Richard Nixon was a horrible president, um, a horrible guy, a corrupt politician, all of those things. I could go on, but, um, what he did and arguably one of the most detrimental things that he did during his presidency was discredited this entire movement, um, of criminal, or excuse me, not of criminal, of civil rights and LGBTQ plus rights and women's rights. He... Used this coin to this like, he coined this term "law and order," and which, by the way, the president of the United, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, continues to tweet out that phrase "law and order." And so, know where those sort of phrases come from. This one comes from a very, very discriminatory, discriminatory past, because Richard Nixon would say "law and order" as a way to a. Um, For citizens to be fearful, but also to um, criminalize movements, like I said, such as the women's rights movement, civil rights movement, and LGBTQ plus movements. So you'd say, "I believe in law and order, so people shouldn't be protesting on the streets um, because they're so violent and they're all criminals." And um, yeah, it was it was honestly, in short, it was a way to be uh, racist and against change uh, without being. Like super obvious about it, Um, yeah. It, It it criminalized people for speaking out about injustices to help Nixon politically. That's basically the best way that I can describe it. Now let's move into the war on drugs, which was created and started by Richard Nixon. So, the war on drugs was definitely one of the most detrimental things that happened for criminal justice in America, specifically and especially when it happens to criminalizing, um, lower income communities. Um, but what the war on drugs was, was the criminalization of drugs in a way that has never before been seen, uh, but also disproportionately affected communities of color and, um, lower income communities. And it was started by Richard Nixon. It's easy to assume that Richard Nixon and his campaign, They started this war on drugs because they thought that drugs were a problem in in the community or whatever. Um, But actually, that's not the case. Uh, So for Nixon's campaign, he had two, what he called two main enemies, and that was the anti-war left and African-Americans. And so if you have to stifle opposition in order to get elected instead of having critical conversations about um, why your stances are the way that they are, then you're probably wrong, (laughs) Um, just a general point of advice, but what he did, and this, so his, uh, who was this, I think this was his domestic policy chief, Um, he said in an interview, um, I'm just going to read this direct quote from him, and then you can decide if the war on drugs was actually because drugs, were a problem or whatever he tries to claim. So this quote says, and this is by his domestic policy chief. So Nixon's domestic policy chief. So the quote says, you understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing them both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Let's just let that quote sink in for a second. Because that was someone who was high up in our politics who said that. And the war on drugs historically was used for a couple um, elections as this great thing that was helping people and was getting drugs off the street or whatever. But as we clearly see, that's just not the case. And it was a way to criminalize, to associate people who um, who spoke out against things with crimes. And that's a huge aspect to understanding criminal justice is the substance abuse problem glaringly obvious way that the war on drugs uh of disproportionately affected communities of color was with crack cocaine so crack cocaine and cocaine are almost the exact same drug except for cocaine is significantly more expensive than crack cocaine and crack cocaine was used in urban areas and primarily lower income areas or areas, um, of color. And so the prison sentences for crack cocaine were significantly longer than the prison systems, than the prison sentences for cocaine. And the only difference was the price of the drugs, like the, nothing else really separated the drugs apart. So, essentially what it was doing was criminalizing poverty since crack was way cheaper and primarily used in lower income areas. And so by associating these lower income areas with crack cocaine and portraying crack cocaine as this horrible, crazy drug that you need to go to jail for 15 years for, whereas cocaine was just kind of a slap on the wrist, it really was detrimental to these areas and it was perpetuated by um, a lot of the media and shows surrounding it, which I will get into in a moment. But we also saw, in the time, this Just Say No campaign, which was so, basically, I have in my notes, it just says so friggin' stupid, because essentially what it was was this campaign that Nancy Reagan really started, and so it was kind of manipulative, I think, because Nancy Reagan had this like very like sweet like oh just say no to drugs they're frying your children's brain and just a disclaimer I'm not sitting here trying to say oh my gosh we should legalize all drugs the this big like conspiracy you you know that's not what I'm trying to say I'm just trying to like point out how um discriminatory a lot of these drug laws are um, I'm not trying to say that we should legalize any of these drugs or anything like that. That's a conversation for a different podcast. Uh, but that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm ju- what I'm trying to point out is just the um, inequities between sentences with what drugs. Um, but yeah, so Nancy Reagan's campaign was basically just perpetuating the war on drugs and had this like lighthearted, oh, just say no campaign campaign. Um, so that was really embedded into society at this time of this anti-drug movement, which really was anti, especially anti-crack cocaine, because that's what the media portrayed the people using the most. And so, yeah, it was super detrimental to these communities of color and lower income communities. And arguably, it, I mean, a lot of these policies that were enacted are still um running their course and, and harming people in these lower-income areas today, which is why this conversation needs to be had. So basically Richard Nixon Nixon started this war on drugs and perpetuated all of these stereotypes that we all know not to be true. Ronald R- President Reagan, who came next, actually made this problem significantly worse. So, this started with Ronald Reagan declaring the war on drugs and made this, I guess, what you could call a real war. And the ironic thing about all of this is that in the 80s, drugs were not really a problem to most Americans. Like, most Americans didn't think, oh, our society is plagued with drugs, um, we, need, we need to fix it, but... Ronald Reagan still pushed this narrative of um, all of these drugs and um, how it was ruining communities. You've probably seen the ad with the egg, where they, like, cracked the egg into into the frying pan. Also, during this time, we saw this—I keep saying we saw, I'm so sorry— but there was this financial crisis, and Ronald Reagan's way of dealing with this financial crisis— was no more social programs. Okay, we're not going to help any more people out. Um, so the richer got rich and the poorer got poorer was basically what happened. I'll skip the nitty gritty details because you can imagine what happens when you get rid of social programs and cut social programs. Um, but it also made the drug crisis in America significantly bigger because, as I previously stated, um, a lot of the drug problems were concentrated in... Um, lower income areas specifically especially like criminalized in lower income areas and which like perpetuated the circle between poverty incarceration and drugs which they're all intertwined and I'll be going over that a bunch during this series um but yeah essentially it just made this drug crisis a lot bigger especially in lower income areas because of the connection between poverty and drugs and since poverty was um since poverty rates were climbing drug use was climbing okay getting back to what i started to mention earlier with the media and how the media portrayed um certain drugs in certain areas so first of all the media's whole angle and this was like kind of coupled with um politics and, and all this is kind of intertwined but essentially what it did was it painted african or Amer- er, so African Americans and um, like uh, honestly, people in color in general um, were are overrepresented in the media as criminals, which is a is a scare tactic, is a fear tactic, a way to make people feel afraid of people of color um, or afraid of certain areas. His whole angle was to make people afraid and make people feel um, afraid of people of color and also areas of color really and. Um, they sort of coined this term super predators, um, which was basically just assigned to people of color. Um, And people of color were really painted in the media as like these animals that needed to be controlled. Um, We saw this with the Central Park Five, which which, if you haven't seen that documentary on Netflix, it is a really heavy watch, but um, it's definitely an important one to sort of see different ways that the system is against um people but essentially what happened if you don't know the story um five young african-american boys were um charged with raping a woman in the in central park um they didn't do it our current president of the united states back when this happened asked actually for the execution of all of these boys um even though they were all um proven to be innocent they spent time in jail even though they were innocent um Yeah, it's just a horrible story. And I definitely recommend watching the documentary for more um, in-depth information about it. Um, Another thing that the media would do is they would introduce people by their crimes. And so instead of saying like, oh, this person uh, killed someone or this person um, assaulted someone, they would say the murderer. Um which was just kind of a way to manipulate the audience to associate people with crimes. Also a big um, perpetrator of this is the show Cops, which, um, being completely transparent, I remember um, my dad used to watch cops and I used to like see it on when he would watch it. And I never thought anything of it. I never like, it never crossed my mind the horrible stereotypes that they were perpetuating. but um, now looking back at it, as informed as I am now, like I can't even believe that they would allow a show like that on the air because um, it subtly but not so subtly painted these lower income areas as like areas ridden with crime with like crazy people and that's so detrimental to communities because, I I mean, I don't even need to explain why that's detrimental to communities. And so, yeah, like there were a lot of shows like that that came around in this time. Now the Bush election comes, and so it's George W. Bush. Uh, he's running against. Oh my gosh, I forgot his name off the top of my head, but um. Running against this progressive Democrat who was really for criminal justice reform, and one of the things he advocated for was giving criminals like weekend passes, if you will, so that they could go out and. Um, go out and, you know, work or visit their family or whatever. I don't really know the exact details of this. Um, and also, before I continue this story, just a quick, like, trigger warning, for lack of a be- Yeah, trigger warning. Um, I'm about to talk about sexual assault for just a second. Um, and if you, if you don't want to hear about that, definitely just skip um, just a little bit. Um, anyways, so during the Bush election... Um, The progressive democrat was winning um like in the polls and stuff and so bush pulled out this um attack ad and they featured this guy um this african-american man named willie horton and um who he was was he was a black male rapist and so bush kind of used this one example as like hey do you want this guy walking around in your streets in the weekend? Which is such a common way of people to discredit. Like, you saw that with the Civil Rights Movement. You know, you're seeing that with Willie Horton. It's such a common way to, like, discredit people by, like, pointing out one person who did something wrong. And, like, make no mistakes. It was deliberate that they chose an African-American man. Like, it was not... Like, that was deliberate because of the underlying racism that comes with criminal justice and... um like the justice system in general and crime in America so deeply rooted in um, this conversation of race and so they picked this Willie Horton and um, sort of painted George W. Bush as the savior of white people like oh you know you don't want these crazy people on your street so vote for me Um, because I'm tough on crime and which as we know this tough on crime rhetoric is so detrimental but um, they use this specific Willie Horton case even though um, statistics show that interracial rape is way more prevalent with, um, white men on black women versus the other way around, so, like, this really and truly by, like, not, not to discredit what had happened, but, like, it's such an isolated incident, if that makes sense, and so, but they use this, like, one incident to, like, discredit, um, the criminal justice reform that this progressive candidate was trying to push, and thus, um, Bush got elected, and yeah, so then, and if you're wondering why I'm talking, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I thought this was history of the criminal justice system, you're talking a lot about politics, Um, yes, because um, a lot of this is rooted in, like, racist policies and racist politicians, um, which affect the system, and so that's why I'm talking a lot about politics and different presidents I'm sorry if it's boring. Um, It's just important information that I think everybody should know. Okay, so now let's get into the era of Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton, as I'm sure everybody listening to this probably knows, uh, was considered himself a Democrat. Um, He ran under the Democratic platform. Um... But because these last couple presidents had all been Republicans and all won under the basis of being tough on crime, he, Bill Clinton, decided to adopt a centrist view that was tough on crime because Democrats kept losing because they were seen to be not tough on crime. Um, and Bill Clinton created a lot of things that were just so horrible to criminal justice. And I feel like an important conversation to be had is that just because people fall under certain party lines like just because bill clinton called himself a democrat and democrats are supposed to be like um really pro criminal justice reform doesn't mean that he is not guilty of doing the same things as these other republicans did which was all just detrimental to criminal justice reform and i think that that's a conversation that needs to be had so anyways so bill clinton a couple of the main things that he did that i just want to highlight, so. First was the the three stri- strikes three strikes law. Excuse me. So, basically, what that was was your third felony, you are put in jail for life, and it also created mandatory minimums. And so, mandatory minimums are when the judge um, can't sentence you for less than, say, five years for a certain offense. So, the judge can't take in can't use their discretion to say, oh, you know, you're you're 15. You've never been in trouble before. Um, yeah, I understand the situation and I'm going to let you off on you know, parole or whatever. They have to sentence you for at least five years um, while also making your third felony. You're in prison for life. And so that really contributed to mass incarceration um, because a lot of people were being locked away without the discretion of the judge being able to say like, oh, I understand their situation and I'm not going to send them to jail for this long, but now they have to at least send them for this long so it makes a lot of prison sentences longer um which as like i'll get into on another episode it's incredibly damaging to your mental health to be in prison and so to keep these long sentences it's just horrible for prisoners mental health and really really contributes to um the recidivism rates that we see in the united states compared to elsewhere In addition to that, Bill Clinton had the 1994 crime bill, um, which was also, co I believe, co-written by Joe Biden. I don't really know, but what I do know is that Joe Biden had a big role in this, which, like I said before, we can't just excuse people because they fall under a party that we believe in. I think that they still need to be held accountable for bad things that they did. And the 1994 crime bill is a bad thing that happened in American history. And nobody is excused from that just because they're a, a Democrat or, you know, they're pro-criminal justice reform now or whatever. Um, what the 1994 crime bill did was so, first of all, it expanded the prison system. Didn't fix the criminal justice system or the prison system. It expanded it. So it built more prisons. It hired more guards, all of that kind of stuff. Didn't put any money into rehabilitation, none of that kind of stuff. It also put more police on the streets, which, as we've seen, um, really affects lower income communities um, more than anywhere else. Uh, which is incredibly harm like incredibly harmful, obviously. this idea of like the militarization of the streets. all it's done is it's just been detrimental to communities. It, it's just led to like more police shootings. It's led to policies like stop and frisk. I mean, It's just a horrible idea in general. Um, You can't solve a problem by, like, adding more perpetrators. If if that makes any sense, that might not have made any sense. But anyways, so um, Bill Clinton actually came out and said, you know, this bill was wrong and that he's sorry. Um, Not that that really does anything because we're still seeing the effects of this bill um, today. But I think it's important that he takes accountability for what he what he did and starts those conversations up again. Um, and honestly, like I, I hope to see Joe Biden do the same thing. Um, just my personal opinion, I haven't seen anything where he came out and, and said what he did was wrong, uh, which it was. And so I'd like to see that conversation happen because um, a lot of these policies have really greatly affected um, communities of color. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to move forward from that. Not that apologizing is going to take away all the detrimental effects of this, but it may help to um, acknowledge the problem so that we can see a solution. To sort of end this episode out first, um, I just want to say that these systems that I've talked about this entire episode are so embedded to help the rich and to hurt the poor Um and the cycle of poverty as it relates to incarceration is pretty damning. And I think having these conversations are super important. I also think it's important not just to listen to this podcast and be like, oh, thanks, Amanda, for all this like, information. Um, definitely go and check out um, other resources, especially resources from people of color, because it's really important to hear their voices and hear them out and hear their firsthand experiences, because I could talk all day long about these statistics that I read and my opinions that I have but it's definitely really important to hear people of color and hear their journey through this system that um, directly affects them and so I I strongly encourage um, listening to different podcasts and reading different books and just expanding your knowledge um, on this topic because it's a really really deep topic and this episode really just scratched the surface um, yeah, just to finish it out with a statistic that I forgot to mention, um, but really just shows how, um, detrimental these last 30 years have been in terms of incarceration in the United States. So in 1970, we had 357,000 people behind bars, and we have 2.3 million today. So, that huge jump is clearly because of the systems that were put in place by people like richard nixon and ronald reagan and bill clinton all people that need to be held accountable for their actions and conversations need to happen about the history of the justice system in america before we can begin to solve it um honestly at the end of the day we owe it to every single person no matter any identity that they hold um We owe it to them to have equal justice under our law. We cannot continue to ignore these issues that plague our community with injustice. We need to end the stigmatization and ignorance that comes with the word prison and become a community ready to reach out and help people succeed. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. Please check out 13th, the documentary, Just Mercy, the movie, or there are also tons of other resources. that can help educate you guys on this issue. Next month, we will talk about bail and public defenders and all of the problems that come with that. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope to talk to you all very soon. Bye.